Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Hacking HR podcast, the show where we talk about the amazing future of human resources and all things at the intersection of future of work, technology, innovation, organizations, transformation, and people. At Hacking HR, we believe that human resources can become the most important trailblazer, leading people and organizations successfully and effectively into the new reality of work and life. To do that, we must rise to the challenges of our times, shoot for the stars, and achieve our fantastic potential. During this show, we discuss ideas, insights, data, experiences, stories, and anything else that can contribute to helping you become and be a better HR leader and practitioner. Thank you so much for joining us today and enjoy the show. It's, it's hard to, to pin down one specific culture because there, every culture is a little unique and that's what's beautiful about culture. It's, it's really this who we are and that it gets expressed in lots of different ways. Um, but I would say that the biggest thing that, that makes a, a culture really healthy is that what you say it is, is congruent with what's actually experienced. I mean, so many times we aim towards something or we, we advertise that we're a certain way as a culture and we, we don't act that way internally. And then when we have that lack of congruence, we have lack of engagement. And so whether that's you're more formal or you're more casual or you're, you're more fun or you're more serious or any of those, those are, are all um, perfectly healthy cultures as long as it's congruent with who you say you are and how you aim to be. Angela is an expert in architecting talent management programs. She has over 20 years of experience and her career has spanned leadership roles with several Fortune 500 firms with a track record of designing, delivering, and deploying results across the entire range of talent management practices. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Hacking HR podcast. Really excited to be bringing a conversation about all things culture employee engagement, employee experience. And Angela, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Thank you. Great to be here. I'm, I'm well, thank you. How are you? Good, good. Thank you. It's, uh, it's awesome to chat with you. And I'm very, I'm a little jealous that you are in Denver and mm -hmm. it's such a beautiful place. And, uh, you know, Colorado is such a beautiful state. So you, you're lucky. Thank you. I, I, yes, I feel very fortunate to be here. Yeah, awesome, awesome. Well, you know, it's great to have you in the podcast. And I want to begin by reading something that you have on your LinkedIn. So for everybody to pay attention to this quote, there is nothing like a dream to create the future. You got that in your, on your LinkedIn by Victor Hugo, one of your, uh, uh, you know, favorite authors. And I want to ask you just to start our conversation. When you dream about the ideal organization, one mm -hmm. where culture is amazing, where employee engagement is high, where people working for that organization are getting the best experience out of working in there. How does it look like? What does that organization look like? Um, you know, I, it's, it's hard to, to pin down one specific culture because there, every culture is a little unique and that's what's beautiful about culture. It's, it's really this who we are and that it gets expressed in lots of different ways. Um, but I would say that the biggest thing that, that makes a, a culture really healthy is that what you say it is, 
is congruent with what's actually experienced. I mean, so many times we aim towards something or we, we advertise that we're a certain way as a culture and we, we don't act that way internally. And then when we have that lack of congruence, we have lack of engagement. And so whether that's you're more formal or you're more casual or you're, you're more fun or you're more serious or any of those, those are, are all um, perfectly healthy cultures as long as it's congruent with who you say you are and how you aim to be. So I think that's the biggest thing is that, that congruence. Uh, absolutely. And, and that is powerful because one of the things that a lot of people complain about is when you see the values of the organization hanging on the walls and the principles and the behaviors and blah, blah, blah. And then you go to and talk to people in that organization and the behavior is completely, uh, you know, uh, misaligned vis-a-vis the, you know, the, the espoused values or the espoused culture. And that creates, uh, it seems to me, creates a, a lower engagement, as you said before, but distrust too in what the organization says they want to do, it wants mm-hmm. to do. Yeah, and it can be little things. And oftentimes, we're not always even aware of it. You know, we we may say that, that we support a work from home culture. But if in reality, you really, you really need to see people in person, be able to pop into their offices to get work done, then as much as you say, we support a work from home culture that that never will be completely congruent. Or if you say, gosh, we were real casual clothes here. And, 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 you know, we, we just speak real casually to each other. But the second you're on a zoom call with the the leaders of the company, you've got to get all dressed up and, and talk more formally, then there, there's not congruence there. And sometimes it's those little things we don't even recognize we're doing that can, neither of those things are wrong. They're just not congruent with what we just said we are. And if we recruited somebody in particular into a, a certain kind of culture and what we are is different from what we've advertised, they're either going to leave really quick or yeah. worse, they'll get disengaged mentally and they'll you know, take people down with them. So, yeah. so definitely I think that congruence is, is the key, which means you really need to understand who you really are. Absolutely. And I want to step back a little bit to talk about how we build at least the spouse culture. I'm assuming that whoever says that they're going to do something, that's actually what they're going to make happen, right? Um, so I want to step back because one thing that that is truly interesting in, in this very fluid work environment is how cultures are adapting and changing quickly, not only as a response to, to crisis like COVID, but also to the, the way people work, the nature of the work that they are doing. And I want to ask you, how, in an environment where the world is more VUCA than ever before, mm-hmm. how can we make sure that there's, there's some level of... Um, you know, sanity, if you will, in the kind of culture that you're trying to create and you're not driving people crazy by changing things. Like, for example, you said before, okay, today we come to the office, tomorrow we work from home. Today you can wear blue jeans and tomorrow you have to come wearing a tie. So right. how, how do we make sense of all these changes in culture? I think the biggest thing is to listen. I So often we, we design culture in a back room or based on a book or a, you know, a webinar or something. And we're like, okay, we're, we're gonna be this culture. And it's based on nothing other than what we think people want instead of what we really are. So if, you, if we really spend some time listening to our actual own people, the people that are, that are working every day, that are living and breathing the culture, 
and listen to them, whether it's through surveys or focus groups or interviews or what have you, whatever works in your organization and really ask them, what do we have that you love? What do we have that you wish we could check out the window as, as fast as possible? What do we don't have that you really wish we did? And you really listen to their answers and what they're really looking for and you build a culture around that then you know it's based on something real and again, not just based on a book or, or somebody else's idea of culture. Yeah, absolutely. You know what's one thing that is so powerful about what you're saying is that you get, we get so much talent in our organizations mm -hmm. and very often, actually more often than not, which is totally counterintuitive to me, we don't tap into that talent to mm -hmm. get the information about what we need to do. And instead we just go outside, right? And we, you know, we bring, you know, yeah, an expert and something, you know, to guide us, but also we copy, copy some of those quote unquote best practices instead of asking what makes sense for us. What is, mm -hmm. what is, what is it that we should be doing because it's what makes sense for this organization. And we've collected some of that via our own conversations with our people. Right. Well, and I think we're afraid of the answer sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I, think, I think we think, oh, they're going to come back and say they want ping pong tables and free lattes and dogs at work and, you know, work from home every single day forever. And all these things that maybe the, the leaders are afraid to hear. And in my experience, I've done this a couple of different times and that's not what they come back with. They come back with, I want to be trusted and I want to, I, to be innovative and I want to be around fun people and I want to be included in things. They don't come back with, I, I want a popcorn machine in the office, you know? Um, so, so I think sometimes what stops us from asking is we don't think we want to know the answer. I mean, we really do. Yeah. Which seems to me that at the end of the day, that actually generates even more disengagement because right. then you end up doing something that people didn't want in the first place. So you didn't ask them, you are giving them something they didn't want. And then you continue not to ask them what they want. So it's like, it's like bad from all, from all angles that you look at it. Right. And, right. and I like this idea of, of leaders sometimes being afraid of what they are going to be told. And, and one of the excuses that you hear very often when for for not bringing up these conversations at work is i don't know how much money that's gonna it's gonna cost for us to do right. what people are telling me to do and it boils down to what you're saying it is things as simple as you know i want more feedback from my uh, leaders mm -hmm. I, yeah. I i want to be trusted i want to be assigned to projects that are interesting i want to be able to collaborate more and these things should be built in the organization they shouldn't cost any extra money yeah, they cost nothing they cost yeah. nothing yeah now, what are the barriers, though, uh, besides fear? You know, you go to talk to somebody and you know that you have to make cultural uh, re-architecting in the organization, adjustments. Why is it always that, you know, sometimes it seems that you know what you need to do, but then you don't do it. It's fear. Are there any other elements that you think that there might be something along the lines of, you know, uh, if, if, you, if you finally accept that, people are telling you that they need more feedback is because they weren't getting that feedback before. Therefore, your leaders may not have been prepared for leading effectively. Is, is there anything else that you've, you've found um, in terms of obstacles to kind of create that great culture? Yeah, I, I think the biggest thing is people don't know how to yeah. put it in place. And, and it, it's one thing to get the feedback. It's now another thing to actually architect it into the culture and, and integrate it into your philosophy and your 
talent cycle and every way that you communicate and and embed it across everything and then go go out there that design um, ability is something that that I really don't think a lot of people either have or fully embrace so it's it's hard to go from I hear you to now help me do something about that. So we, we think we've accomplished that by saying, okay, we, we have a new culture now, here it is. And we announce it and we put it on a big board and um, you know, m- maybe we put it into our website and then we stop and we think, yeah. okay, everybody knows our culture and they're just gonna do it, right? Instead of realizing that we now have design steps to go forward with, to actually fully integrate it into all of these experiences that are across our cycles. Absolutely. And this is a great segue to ask you specifically about the role of human resources in architecting these cultural transformation changes, whatever we want to call it. Mm-hmm. What do you see or how do you see the role of the human resources leader or professional in this architecture or re-architecture of culture? Yeah, and it, it's exactly that. It's, it's that it is as an architect. And if you think about what an architect does, You know, an architect is somebody who, first of all, they are designing for somebody else, right? They're not designing for themselves. They're designing for a client, which means they need to understand what that client is looking for, how many bathrooms that client needs and where their door needs to be and if they have pets or not. And and all of those kinds of things, they need to understand the, the stakeholders and then design for those people. And then once they've designed, what's really interesting about an architect, um, I used to want to be one, um, they, they, uh, they don't walk away. You know, designers create some of the renderings, the, those, those beautiful watercolors sometimes of, of what the building is going to look like, or sometimes a 3D model. And then that's it. That, that's really where their role stops. What's interesting about an architect is they stay during the construction phase and they oversee that construction. And so they're talking to the, the trades that when that electrician comes in to say, gosh, I know you put this outlet over here on the drawing, but I don't want to put it there. It doesn't make sense. It makes sense over here. The architect either needs to use their influence to say, no, it needs to go where I drew it because I, I know what's coming next. And I know all of these other things that, that are related to this outlet, or they need to listen to the electrician and say, why is it that it can't go there? Let me understand from you. And if I think about from an HR standpoint, we often are good at one or the other. We're often really good at listening to stakeholders and reflecting some of their ideas back to them and coming up with this beautiful design. And then we stop. Or we're really great at saying, let me help you with this implementation or even do the implementation myself because I'm a great doer. And we didn't do some of that design. So what's interesting about architect is they're both. And I think that's the big role that HR needs to realize we play. We are really architecting this whole structure around culture and employee experience. We're not driving it ourselves. We're not the actual ones building it, but we're certainly overseeing the build and doing that initial design. I I love that. And you mentioned several capabilities in HR that, of course, you know, when you look around, you see some very progressive, forward-thinking mm-hmm. HR leaders embracing them. But as HR as a function, if HR was a thing and not a person, then HR, that, that thing doesn't have it yet. For example, you mentioned things such as, you know, if I need this outlet to be here, it's not because I am stubborn about it being there. It's because I know the next 20 steps 
the mm-hmm. construction of this building. So I know that if we put it in another place, then it's going to be blocking a column or who knows what, right? Mm-hmm. And I love this because this implies that HR needs to be ahead of the game, not only of the game of implementation, but ahead of the game of the scenarios that can happen in the company, right? What, what, you know, what happened if we do this? What's going to happen farther down the road? That puts great pressure on HR to understand that it's not just about the day-to-day, but about potential future outlets of what could happen in the organization. And then the other thing that you mentioned, which I think is fascinating as well, is we're there, we're building for somebody else, which is the organization, and we got to understand our client, meaning we got to understand our business leaders and we got to understand our clients. And once again, you know, separating the the HR leaders that are so forward-thinking and the HR function in itself, HR mm-hmm. as a function is not there yet. It's not right. in that place of thinking, I truly understand my business, my, my, my business, my, my, my clients, my business leaders, and I know what kind of building they want to build. So I know how to put things around in here. And I mm-hmm. think that's such a big gap that we have to fill. Right. And I think, I think so often we'll say, well, what building do you want? Yeah. Instead of, again, thinking of an architect, they'll ask that, but they'll also bring their expertise yep. into play. And some, sometimes we fail to do that. Um, sometimes we, we don't think about the, the durability of something. You know, a great architect isn't going to build a building that's going to crumble the next yeah. day. If they, if they do, they didn't really, truly architect a masterpiece. So, we, so yeah, that durability, that impact is important. Um, you know, I think what's interesting about HR is we've come a long way. Um, but I think that we talk so much still about wanting to be strategic and wanting to place at the table and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> yep. But then when we get it, we don't know what to do with yep. it oftentimes yep. because I think it, it is, it's, it's um, maybe intimidating is the right word to think about all of those things that you just said, being, being ahead of the game, thinking about some of the business skills, some of the business impacts, understanding what questions to ask, understanding that, that the ball is our, in our court when we yeah. ask some of those questions. And so it's a lot easier just to play the, the implementer role. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, the, step back into that. And then we'll go complain again that, that we're not in the strategy role. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I agree with you. I think there's a, to me, there's a little bit of when we talk about that, getting that seat at the table, which is an expression mm-hmm. that I myself don't like that much because yeah. it's uh, it feels that the table is already created that somebody's, you know, we have to wait for somebody to give us permission or to give us right. the opportunity to get there. And to me, there's another side of the coin, which is let's earn that opportunity to be there. Let's not wait for anybody to give it to us. We have to create it ourselves. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned two avenues to do that. You know, you have to be ahead of the game and you have to understand your, your customer, uh, which is your organization and your business leaders and your people. But to me, it, it really boils down to us in HR being able to remove the HR hat and putting on the business hat. If yeah. we thought as business leaders rather than HR practitioners or HR leaders, I think our thinking would be so different and the way we do things would also be so different, right? I, I agree. If we think of ourselves as business people who happen to be in HR first hey. instead of HR people first, most most of our colleagues, that's how they think. They don't think of I'm finance first or marketing first or IT first. They think I'm business first. And then this is how I do that business. And for some reason, we've been kind of trained to think the opposite way. And if we if we learn to, to think as business people first and all the implications that that means, and then we bring that HR hat, that, that people bent and that employee experience bent to play, 
then I, I, I really think there's no stopping us. And I, I think we've got the skills. We truly do. We just, I think sometimes are, um, I don't want to say afraid, but uh, maybe hesitant to, yeah. to always use them because of the implications. Yeah. What I mean. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Uh, and I think for a long time, we've been trained to, uh, and I say this with all respect to lawyers, I'm not a lawyer, I'm an engineer, and, um, and I'm in HR, but, you know, we are trained to just look at the, at the, at what we do in HR as, as, as if it was the law, you know, something that right. can't change. And if we ever, you know, go a little bit outside of the law, then we're making a huge mistake. And that has created so much backlash in our possibility to grow and to do things differently in HR, because we are, like you're saying, we are afraid. What happens if I, what happens if I don't follow through every single detail that is in this policy? Am I going to get punished? Am I going to get fired? Am mm-hmm. I, you know, uh, breaking the law. So, um, so we got to change that, that, uh, that, uh, you know, uh, construction, that discourse that has put HR in the place where it is today. Right. We, we get into very black and white kind of yes. policy and policing. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think we do it out of good intention Yeah, that we, we want to keep the organization out of trouble. But I think that also gets us down to the lowest common denominator instead of realizing most people don't want to get the organization in trouble either. And most people are, are in this for the right thing and let's design things for them instead of for, for that person that, um, you know, when work from home wasn't as common, the, the complaint I would always hear from leaders is, well, if I let people work from home, yeah. they're going to do laundry. And it's like, well, so what? So yeah. what if they do? As long as they're getting their work done. But yeah. then we get into this, well, we can't allow it because they might do laundry instead of thinking about, well, they might not. And if they yeah. do, does it matter? Yeah. So we, yeah, we get into this kind of process, like craziness in our mind, and then we can't get away from that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and this is a great segue, actually, to to one topic that is definitely connected to the idea of culture, which is employee experience. And you just mentioned a great example, right? Working from home. There were all these excuses before about not letting, pe- not letting people work from home because lack of trust or, you know, uh, what have you. A lot of different things that we came up with to not let people work from home. But I want to ask you, what do you think are the main areas that we need to be thinking about to build a great employee experience, especially in times of challenge and adversity, like the world is going through, well, you know, these days because of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think what's interesting about employee experience is, you know, I, I feel like it's been kind of a thing in HR for five-ish years, it seems mm-hmm. like maybe a tad bit longer, but we've never actually really defined it as a profession. So everybody's kind of got their own spin on what they think it is. And I think in many cases, people use it as a replacement term for the employee journey. Mm-hmm. And they just think it's fancier to say employee yeah. experience instead of realizing, like, think about how we use the word experience in our day-to-day lives. Like if I'm gonna go order food, and I'm going to just go order food from just some run-of-the-mill restaurant because I just need I need something to eat, but I don't want anything super special. And I, I go off and I get my order and I come back home and it's maybe a little bit lukewarm and there was nothing wrong with it, but it wasn't fantastic. I'm never going to go tell anybody else about it. Yeah. 
But if instead I order from a gourmet restaurant and it's my favorite food and I'm looking forward to it and I, and I go and I, and when I pick it up, I I'm treated extra special by the person who brings me my, my bag of food and I get home and not only is it, is it packaged maybe really beautifully, but they put something extra in there. They put some extra sauce or napkins or you know, some <laughs> of those little things. And then I, I bite into that food and maybe I'm immediately transported to the last time I was in the country where that food is from or something. Now I've had an experience with yeah. that food and I'm thinking about it and I'm, I'm having a different interaction than I did maybe the prior night. That's what experience is, right? Experience is something special. Experience is um, nothing mundane. Experience is something I put effort in and somebody else also puts effort in. And when we are employees, we want that same specialness, that same effort. It's not just a replacement term for our overall journey as employees at, at work. It's not a replacement term for technology. Yeah. It's not a replacement term for, for facilities. It's, it's really about this, um, the what, you know, if culture is the who, then it, the experiences are how that culture is expressed in yeah. these various what's. And so the, the different experiences that are really important to people, it's, it's really end to end. They want a, an onboarding experience that accelerates them in to the company quickly and, and is engaging. They want a, a um, performance feedback experience that's engaging instead of enraging, right? They, they want a <laughs> development experience that really moves them through the cycle and accelerates their, their next spot in the journey. And as each one of these, if they're designed really intentionally, they are, they are truly experiences, each on their own, that added together will create that environment of, of engagement that we keep coming back to. So, so I, don't, I don't know that there's one that I could say is more important than another, but it's thinking of them as, as individual experiences that all have to have this, I mean, go back to culture, that through line of culture that are all built based on those same aspects of who we are that all add up together to make me feel like I'm engaged. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and one thing that is that is coming to my mind now when you're describing all the things that experience is, when I bring that concept back to the world of HR, I'm not saying that it, that it should be easy for us from an HR perspective to be able to do this, but all we got to do is look at the most forward-thinking companies in the world and how they treat people. You just mentioned mm -hmm. a fantastic example go to the best restaurant in the world or in your city, I don't know, and see what they do to treat their customers in a way that invites them to come over and over and over again and give the best reviews and the most mm -hmm. amount of stars and whatnot. And to me, that will bring a great lesson to the world of HR on how to serve people from, mm -hmm. from our perspective, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I, I'm thinking about, you mentioned performance, for example, and I'm thinking, imagine if the chef of that restaurant wouldn't give feedback right on the spot to his sous chef, right? Mm -hmm. Or her sous chef. I mean, the food would be crappy forever, right. Uh, right? They have to be giving feedback right away because that's how they create the best food in the, in the city or in the world. Mm -hmm. In HR, when we think about, you use the example of performance. When we think about performance, it is like a one time, a year, rating based, blah, blah, blah. So I'm thinking we have such a great opportunity to look at the people who already figured out some of these pieces of experience and right. think, how can I bring some of that learning and some of those lessons back to my world in HR? And, mm -hmm. and we would be in a great place connecting dots.
Right. I mean, any, any time you use that word experience, it's for something significant. It's, yeah. it's the, you know, the last time you rode a great roller coaster or had it had an amazing vacation or to tie it back into architecture, you walked into a building that gave, gave you an ooh and an ah. And if we think about that, we'll start to understand what employee experience really means. It's not any one thing. It's all of these things yeah. together that create the experience. And unfortunately the opposite happens. If yeah. any one of those things falls apart, then, then we start to doubt some of the other aspects of it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I, again, I think experience, this requires us in HR to, I'm, I'm going to tie this back to something that you said at the very beginning of our conversation, that we think as the architect that is serving a client, mm-hmm. because then we want to make sure that the client is satisfied, is happy, is, you know, appreciates the service that, she or he is getting because it was a great service. They got that great experience. If we are able at least to think in those terms in the world of HR, I'm guessing that all the other pieces will start falling into place in mm-hmm. our, you know, very complex, you know, uh, work puzzle. But at least we got to have that mindset, right? Which is how do I best provide a great experience to our customers internally right. in the organization. So right. I, I think yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I think I'll, I'll use your phrase. It's as simple as when, when I know it's not, but it's as simple as saying, what is our cycle at our company? Yeah. What are, what are each of the touch points with employees in each one of those cycles? And how do we take each one and make it into a, a better experience? Yes. And it's different for every company, but start, start even with candidate. What's the candidate experience yeah. all the way through, even to the exit. Yeah. And each one of those should be a profound experience. And as you build each one of those, you know, we, we've tried for 20 years in HR to solve the engagement puzzle. <laughs> How do we engage employees? And we haven't succeeded because you can't. We yeah. can't be the ones to do it. Yeah. All we can do is create these experiences where people can't have the, the, the option to be engaged. So if we think of each one of these experiences as a, as a way that collectively they'll add up towards more engagement, that's why you want to do them. That's why you want to, to create these, these great service touch points. I love that, that idea. Yeah, yeah. And, and you just resolved two questions that come up very often in the world of HR when it comes to thinking about this. One of them is, you know, I got all these processes in place, all this stuff going on. And the idea here is start somewhere, right? Go to what, you know, go to your onboarding process, go to your recruitment process, go to your candidate experience journey, you know, go to one of those things and start making adjustments, changes mm-hmm. in there. You don't have to change the entire HR overnight. You got to start mm-hmm. working on these different pieces. And the other question that you resolved is that I, I like to put it this way when, you know, in most of my conversations, which is when I think about the HR processes, I, I, I'm very blunt when I say it's either you're adding value or you're adding waste to the organization. And mm-hmm. if you look at your process and you have 20 steps to do something and you really reflect about those 20 steps and there are 10 of them that are truly valuable and the other 10 are just like, well, you know, it's good to have them, but we don't need them. That's waste. Just remove mm-hmm. them because they are, it's like, it's like the guy in the restaurant that is asking you 10 extra questions for you to get your food when you are like, what the heck are those, have those questions have to do with what I'm you know, what I'm uh, ordering here or what I want to get an experience uh, from this restaurant. So, um, so well, I gonna, that goes, yeah. that goes back to the, the comment about we, we over process everything and yeah. put policies in place for who knows why. Mm. And I think that's <laughs> 
why we we have 20 steps when only 10 will do because maybe at some point somebody did something that required that policy or we thought did you know my um my husband and son went on a um a uh, um Oh gosh, what what do you call it? Uh, zip lining uh, <laughs> here in Colorado this summer, and they were told, you know, they had to sign off on all of their waivers on what what they had to do, and you know, wear closed-toed shoes and make sure you wear you know more athletic gear, no dresses. Okay, that makes sense. And then it specifically said no kilts, and I <laughs> I I looked at that and said that means somebody did it. That means somebody <laughs> wore a kilt to the zip line experience at some point. And now they had to write it into the policy. Yeah. Or did they? Could they have just said, wear some basic athletic gear? Yeah. And so they 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 did exactly what you said. They wrote 20 bullet points of all the things not to do instead of maybe just one bullet point of what to do. Now, maybe that's not the greatest example because there's a safety. <laughs> <laughs> but but it, it, you know, you we do often write policies for that one person. Yeah. 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 Thinking about what's the experience that that you know, 98% of the people will have through this process. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and it's, uh, we are designing for the outliers and missing the point on the fact that, you know, I think most people behave like adults when they come mm-hmm. to work and they know what to do. I mean, it's, it's just unfortunate that we're dragging a lot of management thinking from 1920 and, you know, 1940, and we still consider those those ideas as relevant and they're not they 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 are not anymore so angela as we this has been a great chat a great conversation i love it and and as we wrap up our chat i want to ask you if you were to tell hr leaders or practitioners begin here your journey as an architect to architect the culture of the organization starts here what would that place be um, I think it would be to start thinking more holistically, start thinking with, with um, not just implementation in mind, because that, that's again where most, most HR people tend to go. Think with design first, then implementation, but think of that implementation as something long-term, something that needs to be durable, something that needs to last and be useful for the people that actually use it. And if you start thinking that way, either, either gain some of those skills yourself to be able to, to really design and think about durability or find some people in your organization that you can partner with that are maybe better at that than, than you and they're maybe not as good at implementation and start partnering people together. Um, I, I think that we could have a, a very successful HR profession as we go into the, um, the next decade. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Angela, thank you so much for spending this time with me and sharing all of these amazing ideas. I had a, I had a lot of fun and learned a lot. So thank you so much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you. And thank you, everybody. Stay tuned for the next episode of the Hacking Nature podcast. See you all soon. Thank you, everybody, for watching or listening to this podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. Please follow us on our social media and subscribe to our newsletter so that you can stay informed of all the things that we're putting together for you from the Hacking Nature community. Thank you so much. Please continue to stay safe, stay well, stay strong, and we will see you soon.